as we talk about Mark chapter 6, and since it's snowing outside, we can stay in here for several hours and be safe and warm, and I know that you'll want to do that, and you'll be able to dig into God's Word. I see Mike Morley smiling over there, and he's anxious to stay here for another couple of hours. So let's dig into it. I want to present a message to you that is somewhat different. It's really not going to be a, a sermon per se. It's really going to be a study. As we have been going through all of this material in Mark's Gospel, I have preached to you now several messages with regard to our Lord's healing ministry. As you know, we've talked a number of times now about Jesus and His healing and His casting out of devils. And I wanted to present a message to you this morning that really links us in to an overall perspective about our Lord's true healing ministry. I really haven't said much to you uh, by way of an explanation as to the uniqueness of Jesus and the apostles and their ministry of healing, and I really should do that. And I thought that the opportunity well presented itself when I looked at Mark chapter 6, verses 53 to 56. And I thought it would be an excellent opportunity for us to talk about the overall matter of our Lord's true purpose for healing. Listen to what Mark records for us in Mark 6, beginning in verse 53. When they, that is Jesus and the apostles, had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about that whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Whenever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. There are multitudes in our own day who are in desperate need of physical healing. You scarcely need to look at your television screen or walk into a hospital ward, say for instance Arkansas Children's Hospital, to see the obvious need for the physical healing of many. As a pastor, I have wished and prayed many times for people who are suffering incredibly and whose families I daily minister to, to see the intervention of God. I remember shortly after I arrived and was installed as the pastor of the Bible Church of Little Rock, in fact, it was on the Saturday prior to my Sunday installation. I was playing golf with John MacArthur and several of the men here from the church, and I remember I was playing with Curtis, and we were in our golf cart, and we received a call from Betty Thomas, who was at the clubhouse, had driven over there to uh, call us in that emergency situation to tell us that Mark and Jennifer Smith, who at that time, as you know, were the youth pastor and his wife, and that they had just delivered a child and that that child was in uh, distress. And we, of course, with a number of the other pastors and elders, immediately went over to the hospital and we spent, I don't know, probably nine or ten hours, as I remember it, attempting to pray for and encourage Mark and Jennifer as that baby lay dying 
in that hospital. The baby, if you remember, had a genetic predisposition in which uh, it was not producing on its own what was necessary for life. And I can remember very, very vividly standing there with our pastors and elders, and there were only a few of us right at the moment of the baby's death. And I remember Mark and Jennifer crying uncontrollably. And I remember Todd Murray and I were also sobbing, just so overwhelmed at the grief that we were experiencing at that very moment. And I thought to myself, oh, how I'm pleading for Christ to do a miracle right now. And all of those things went through my mind as I'm sure they would go through your mind. You sort of say to yourself, oh Lord, if you would only give this baby's life back to him. What a, what a testimony this would be. The doctors and the nurses and folks at the Bible church and others in the community that would hear of such a thing, they would possibly see this miracle as the very visitation of God Himself on a life, miraculously intervening, injecting into the human degenerative condition that which cannot be explained in any other way other than a miracle. And as I saw that baby's life ebb out from him, I kept saying, Lord, please, please, please. And I guess some of it was because I didn't want the family to suffer so much. I knew the baby himself was in a condition not of his own choosing, and I surmised that the baby would not be because of the mental capacity, not in a great deal of pain. And so while I was concerned for the little one, I was so concerned for the family. And I kept thinking to myself, I want this baby to, to live because I want this family to have their baby back. And I have thought a lot about that since then. And I thought about that this week as I prepared for this message. And I confess that I, at times, I'm sure as you do as well, say to the Lord, Lord, why don't we see more miracles why don't we see more of your direct intervention into the lives of sick people, hurting people, diseased people, people who are even demonically possessed? Why isn't it, Lord, that we see you working in such a way that everyone would say, this is a miraculous intervention of God. Surely there is a God and He's worked in this situation. And I think we've all been tempted to say that to ourselves. Lord, why... Don't we see miracles and healings and people who are infirm and handicapped and people who have lost limbs and people with cerebral palsy and spina bifida and all of those ugly, ugly diseases? Why don't we see those things reversed? Or, Lord, why don't we see an intermediary, a person, a healer, a, a, a Christian who would be able to walk into the Arkansas Children's Hospital and go from room to room and just with the touch of the hand like Jesus Himself, cure many. If you've ever been to a children's hospital to minister to someone and you go from room to room as I have and you see these children who are diseased with cancer and other things and your heart just aches, it just pounds within you because you see the desperation on their faces and the faces of their family. And you sort of catch yourself saying, Lord, why can't it be like 
the days in which you walked on the earth with your apostles. Wouldn't it be such a better place if we were able to see either through you yourself directly or through someone like us as an intermediary touching people and healing them? Wouldn't it be so marvelous, Lord? And I guess in some ways you can turn the other side of things and you say, there are people in our world who say that is happening. There are churches and movements and sectors of Christendom that say those things are in fact occurring. And if they're not occurring at your local church, then you need to move into the realm of the Holy Spirit where those things are working. And I confess that at times that seems a little bit intimidating, doesn't it? Where you say to yourself, well, gee, I mean, I want to be in the flow of the Spirit of God and what He's doing in the world. I certainly don't want to be one of the have-nots. I want to be a part of the haves where all of these things are occurring as they say so regularly and so freely. I want my congregation. I want those people who are hurting. I want those who are diseased with cancer or some sort of sickness for which there appears to be no medical cure. I want those people to be healed. I want to myself or someone in our congregation to be the healer and go and touch and they would be well. I confess that it's somewhat intimidating when I at least hear of these things from the outside and I say, I want everything for my church. If, if the gifts are for today and if every spiritual gift is available for every local church, then I want them all. I want the full-orbed work of the Holy Spirit. And then you read a text like Mark 6 here, 53 to 56, and you say, wow, well, if we could see days like that, where anybody who was ill, diseased, could come to our church and they could be healed. There are many today who say that's possible and who say that's a bona fide ministry of the church. It must be a part of the local church, they say. I've even talked with them. I've spent hours with them dialoguing on these things. And they've said to me, but Lance, you have to understand that even Jesus himself in John 14, 12 says that we as Christians are to do greater works than even the work of Christ. Greater works shall you do because I go to the Father, Jesus says. And they say that must mean then that the greater works are those greater works of a greater proliferation of miracles and healings and exorcisms and the like. And I confess as I talk with them, I, I have an anticipation of, of the desire of that happening, but I also know that as I read the New Testament, I find that the two don't always match, and I want to reconcile the two. What about these claims? What about these people who say this is the kind of ministry we're even commanded to undertake in the church. Are we less a ministry than we otherwise could be if we don't attempt to do these things? Are we intimidated by other ministries because they seem to have more of the Holy Spirit's power to cast out demons and heal the sick? What's the biblical answer to these things? What's the truth? Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning. Because all of us need the truth. We need the truth to influence us and to guide us and to put us on a course of direction where we're not intimidated and we're not 
sheepish about the gifts of the Spirit and where we're right in line with what God is doing in the world. I want to be in that flow, but I want to know what the truth is about the flow. And what I want to do is give you a message this morning that I believe will be encouraging and also truthful about whether or not we're to be involved in the kinds of ministries that we hear about today in local churches around the world. And here's the way I think we should do it. I think, first of all, we have to define precisely the nature of Jesus' own ministry to those who are sick and possessed. I think that's first off the bat. We have to say, what was the ministry of Jesus to the sick, to the infirm, to the demon-possessed? What was it all about? Because if you can discover the nature of Jesus' own ministry, not just the method of it, the method is quite clear as we read it. The question is, what was His purpose for doing such things? What was He thinking? To try to determine whether we must deal with those around us in similar ways, in bondage, we could say. Do we simply try to replicate the ministry of Jesus and the apostles in the very same way that they did it? Well, if we are, then we must determine what is the true nature of His miraculous ministry. What was the purpose? What was it all about? And I think we must understand that Jesus and the apostles' activity of casting out demons and healing the sick, or as we could call it, or as it is popularly known, spiritual warfare, that it occurs in only four books of the New Testament. Now, that might shock you. Because when you hear all of the hype about healing today and about demonic activity and about spiritual warfare, uh, you assume that it's written on virtually every page of our New Testament. But it really is only confined for us to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. But John being uh, written for a different purpose and a, a gospel that's sort of set aside. That's why we talk about the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, because uh, they talk about different things than John's purpose in writing. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they talk about Jesus and His healing ministry and the apostles and their healing ministry. And the book of Acts, as you know, expands on the apostles' healing ministry itself. And so one thing we could do immediately is to say we can call it down to these four books of the Bible and study them and ask ourselves all of these questions. It's also interesting to note that the New Testament epistles themselves do not give us a method for battling with Satan in the same way that Jesus and the apostles did. And again, that may shock us, but you would read in vain in the New Testament epistles to find out a method for attempting to deal in an exorcistic way or in a healing way with people who might be similarly afflicted today. You would assume that if that is for us today, we would have some sort of New Testament epistolary manual that would help us. Uh, some measure of a process in the epistles that would gain us an advantage in dealing with Satan and the demonic and the afflicted, but it's not there. Because remember, those who would have us use the same method of Jesus and the apostles are only looking at the surface of what's really there. And we need to look below the surface to find out the real and true purpose of Jesus' ministry. And I want to give that to you this morning. I believe this is accurate. I believe this is true. And I believe this will help us as we continue to study through Mark's gospel to understand the true nature of Jesus' 
healing ministry. Here we go. First of all, one of the first things that we have to begin to notice underneath the surface about the way Jesus and the apostles dealt with those who were physically challenged or demonically possessed is that He dealt with them in a completely different way than He did with those who had clear issues of sinful activity going on in their hearts. In other words, when you study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts very carefully, you find two categories of the way Jesus dealt with people. With those who were afflicted, diseased, disadvantaged by some sort of physical condition, some sort of medical malady, or a demon possession itself, He always, always dealt with them differently than He did with someone who had a clear trace of a sinful activity that was going on in their hearts. In fact, I believe we can categorize them in this way. Those who are afflicted, diseased, or demonically energized, as we read about them in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, are involved in what we could call situational evil. Situational evil. And those who are involved in direct sinful activity in their thoughts, words, and actions are in a category, as Jesus dealt with them, in what we could call moral evil. Moral evil. And I want to center in on that this morning to describe how Jesus dealt differently with those who were involved in situational evil as, those, as opposed to those who were involved in what we could call moral evil. Now, I've borrowed those two terms from a very excellent book by David Pollison, who was here during our NAIC conference. Very wonderful scholar and friend. And he gives us a key to understanding this in a way that I think is very precisely biblical and very right on target. Listen to what he says in his very good book, Power Encounters, Reclaiming Spiritual Warfare. He helps us in this regard. Here's what he says. He defines these two categories. He says, One key to understanding spiritual warfare in the ministry of Jesus Christ is to notice that he mounted a twin-pronged offensive against the powers of evil, against moral evil and situational evil. Jesus employed two modes of warfare to address two different facets of the evil works of the devil. He goes on to say, Scripture and everyday speech use the word evil in two distinct ways, situational and moral. A passage from Ecclesiastes 9.3 illustrates both. Quoting from Ecclesiastes, it says, This is the evil, situational, in everything that happens under the sun, the same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil. That's moral. And there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterwards they join the dead. Paulison says, We both do moral and experience situational evil. Satan's organizing passion is to draw us into moral evil, making us like him and ruling us. When the Bible says that the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil, it means moral evil first and foremost. Evil includes the element of consequences. It means suffering, hardship, unpleasant and harmful events, death. 
This is situational evil, the evil we experience. One distinctive of situational evil is that both God and Satan use it, although, of course, with opposite intentions. Satan's intent is to harm us, inflicting us with such situational evils and ultimately to murder us. God employs and applies situational evil too, but because He is holy, His intention is to chasten or curse sinners, purifying the faith of His people and judging those who rebel. Now what he's saying is this, two categories in life regarding evil. The first category is situational evil, and that means that with the fall of Satan, which occurred first, as we know, and with the fall of Adam, evil entered into our world. And because evil entered into our world, death was the inevitable result. Because death was not here before evil reigned. That's why Paul says in Romans 5.12 that death is the inevitable consequence of evil. And when Satan fell and brought one-third of the angels with him in this evil capacity, evil entered into our world, and therefore everything that Satan attempts to do in our world is to thwart the plan of God and to bring disease and sickness and debilitation and wickedness of all kinds. Now we know that that is true, but we don't often think of it in that way because for us disease and sickness and deformity and genetic predispositions toward deformity don't always in our minds link up with the fall of Satan or the fall of mankind. And that's because we think of it in general terms. We think of someone who has cancer not as directly linked to Satan or the fall, but indirectly so, and yet we don't always pursue that in our minds. But if we did, we'd find out one surefire fact that the Scripture teaches us, and that is that disease and sickness and, de and deformity and all kinds of handicaps and all the things that you can think of in your mind that are categories of situational evil are indirectly a part of the fall, the curse of mankind. Dr. Jack Summers would, as he meets with people and tries to cure them of their physical maladies, deals with things like that every day. He sees the debilitating effects of sin in the physical location of man, in his body. And yet we don't always say, well, we know that that was as a direct consequence of sin in that person's life, because often it's impossible to tell. We know this, that if there hadn't been a fall, there wouldn't be deformity. If there hadn't been a Satan and his fall and an Adam and his fall, there wouldn't be this debilitation, this degeneration of the human body that ultimately leads to physical death. And so when we look around in our world and you go to the hospital and you see all of this and you say to yourself, where did this come from? The answer is, it comes from the curse. You read Genesis 3 and you see all of the implementation of the curse that God gives, the curse and all of its consequences. The pain of a woman's childbirth, that's a result of the curse. And anything that could be going along with that, a stillbirth, all of that. The baby that I mentioned earlier who died, all of that is a predisposition and consequence of the original curse of both Satan and Adam. Satan's job, his manifesto, is to do anything he can to thwart the purposes of God, sometimes working in the cosmos in ways you and I have utterly no idea about. And if we hadn't been given the revelation of what happened to Job, we wouldn't know why Job received those boils, did we? We would just assume that he had boils because there was something in his environment that he caught 
something that was transmitted to him. But we know because of divine revelation that there was a cosmic battle going on in this galactic universe where God and Satan were duking it out. And God gave Satan permission to sift Job and only gave him one rule, right? He cannot be killed. Well, we look at that situation and we don't say that Job was involved in moral evil. In fact, what does Job 1 say about this man? It says that he was a righteous man. He was the most righteous man on the earth. And so we're not looking at Job's life and immediately trying to suppose, as his counselors did, that, Job, you must have something sinful in your life for which these consequences have been brought on to you. You look at Joseph, and in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he gives the right answer when he says, What you meant for evil, my brothers, God meant for good. He did not involve himself in that way, in moral evil, so as to receive the treatment that he did. You look at a number of passages in the Old and New Testaments and you see this dichotomy between situational evil and moral evil. And even in the Gospel accounts themselves, you see that when Jesus dealt with someone who was involved in what we could call the degenerative effects of situational evil, He never came down hard upon them. In fact, there's not one instance in all the Gospels where Jesus ever looked at a person who was afflicted, who was infirmed, who was handicapped, who was deformed, who was demonically possessed, and pointed out their sin. Never. Not one instance. And yet you look at the same gospel accounts, and when there was someone who was physically or spiritually involved in an act of sin, for which that sin could be directly, directly called upon by Jesus Himself, the woman who was caught in adultery, the woman at the well in John 4, Nicodemus in John 3, the Pharisees throughout the Gospels. Every time there was a moral evil where there was a wickedness of the heart, there was an adultery, there was lying, there was stealing, there were things for which you could say is a direct sinful issue of wickedness in their hearts. Jesus never dealt with them as He did with those who were diseased or sick. He always went right to the core issue of the heart. You are not married to the right man. You actually have five husbands. You're a five-time adulterer. That's what he told the woman at the well. When he said to Nicodemus in John 3, Nicodemus, your problem is not situational evil. Your problem is not some sort of issue for which is indirectly caused by the curse. Your problem is you need to be born again. You have a proud heart. When the person in John 9, the man born blind, this proves the point. When he was questioned by the very Pharisees, they ask what we might assume if we don't have these two categories. They ask the question, did they not? Who sinned? This man or his parents? See, that's moral evil they were supposing. But what was the right answer? The right answer is neither. This man was born blind, the Bible says, for the purposes of the glory of God. See, God was doing something in the cosmos that we don't know anything about. And the specific issue with the man born blind was the issue of an affliction allowed by God for the purpose of His healing right there in that gospel account. It had nothing whatsoever to do with moral evil. And when asked a direct question, the answer from the Word of God is, it isn't moral, it's situational. 
He was born blind because of the degenerative effects of sin, but God used the degenerative effects of Adam's fall for the purpose of glorifying Himself when the man was healed. You see, that is a much, much more precise and biblically oriented way of looking at healing. See, we don't have to be intimidated by those who say, this should be a part of your ministry. Uh, this should be a part of your church. And if you're not doing that, you're involved in less of the ministry of the Holy Spirit than you should. Now, what I would say and what we should say is, let's discover these gospel accounts a little bit more clearly. Let's go underneath the surface and find out what's going on here. Is there any regularity with how Jesus dealt with those who were afflicted and diseased as opposed to those who were involved in a specific sinful activity? And what are the ways He dealt with them? And every way they were afflicted, He dealt with them differently. And every way they were sinfully motivated in their hearts or their actions, He dealt with them differently. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, it says this specifically. Mark chapter 3, verse 10. And if you want to do a study on your own, just go through the gospel accounts and find out every instance of where Jesus dealt with someone who was afflicted and study it yourself and say, did Jesus deal with someone who was afflicted with a disease or a demonic possession and did He point out their sin? Or when Jesus dealt with them, did He, as a compassionate man, deal with them on the basis of the fact that it's obvious they're hurting and they need His divine intervention? In Mark 3.10, it says, For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God! And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. Again, when we're talking about disease and unclean spirits, uh, there's this cosmic battle going on between God and Satan. And sometimes Satan even wants to thwart the plan of God by revealing prematurely who Jesus is, the Son of God. And Jesus says, I don't want that revealed right now. The, the plan is not for me to be revealed right now in that way. And when He healed many, those texts don't say that He healed people by somehow casting out the demon of lust or the demon of greed you hear all of this talk these days about people being afflicted, having these issues in their hearts, and that they need deliverance. And then you have all of these deliverance ministries that talk about people needing to be delivered from the demon of lust or the demon of greed or the demon of homosexuality or something like that. They even go so far as to say that there are territorial spirits. Uh, there's the demon of homosexuality that resides over the city of San Francisco and all kinds of things like that. And that what we need to do is we need to, to replicate Jesus and the apostles' ministry by going into these regions and working a work of the Holy Spirit's power to cast these devils out of people and out of cities. And yet when you look below the surface of the New Testament, you see a very different picture. You never once see Jesus healing someone of the demon of lust, the demon of greed, the demon of adultery. Now what's happening is, situationally, as a result of the curse, you find that people are diseased and infirmed and handicapped, and even in some cases, death. And Jesus reverses those things immediately and instantaneously by saying, as only He could, I reverse this right now. The degenerative effects of sin 
will not occur in this life right now. I reverse it immediately. But he doesn't say, I bind you, Satan. I cast the strong man of lust, or I do all of this out of that person. That's, that's not New Testament terminology. And so when you look at these pictures, especially of demonization, it's never linked to moral evil in the person who has a demon. Never. But we all sort of shudder and say, well, wait a minute. I mean, surely if they're demon-possessed, they let something in. They, they allowed the demon entrance by some means, by some lapse of thinking, by some carnality, by some act. Well, if so, the New Testament doesn't tell us that. It doesn't tell us that. In fact, there's no instance ever in the New Testament of a believer for sure ever allowing Satan a place where demons come and cohabitate with the Holy Spirit inside a person's body. That's, that's utterly ridiculous. There, there's no instance of that at all. Never are we ever told that a Christian is ever possessed by a devil, while at the same time the Holy Spirit is resident within. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the opposite is said. It says, what fellowship has light with darkness? What relationship has Christ with Belial, another name for the devil? The obvious implication is there is now no relationship between a believer and an unbeliever, and certainly believers don't have unbelieving entities inside them. That's incongruous with the New Testament. And so what we have to do, friends, is we have to think biblically and precisely about this matter of demonology and about this matter of the sick and afflicted. You say, well, you're sort of just giving us a theological treatise on this. No, it's very practical. Because when you go and you minister to a friend in the hospital or a loved one or a family member, you want to have everything at your disposal, don't you? You want to have the complete corpus of the Word of God at your disposal. You want to have the full power of prayer at your disposal. You want to have the full flow of the Holy Spirit at your disposal so you can encourage such a person. I want that. You want that as a member of this congregation. I want that as a pastor. Uh, we want that as a church. We want to be able to, to minister in the full capacity of our life in Christ. And the question is, are we going to be intimidated to assume that we should go into one of those environments and say, you, demon, come out. That's the real issue in this person's life. You, a demon of cancer, you come out so that that cancer will be eradicated. You say, well, that's really not been my experience with people. Listen, it is rampant. It is rampant out there. That's what people are saying, and they're saying about you and about me, that if we don't do that, we're less of a Christian than we really should be, less of a church than we really should be. My friends, that's intimidating, unless you know the truth of the Word of God. And if you know this truth, you'll be able to say with all of these passages, now wait a minute, Jesus dealt with those who were afflicted in a much different way than He dealt with those who were clearly sinful in their own actions, in their own deeds, clearly. And that's right, it bears itself out every time. And someone might come along and say, well, wait a minute, what about that Gadarene demoniac in Mark 5? You covered that. It's in the first 20 verses there. He was, he was gnashing at himself. He was taking rocks and he was, he was cutting himself up and causing scars. And he was shackled by chains that he broke. And 
Uh, you can't tell me that guy wasn't involved in moral evil. I mean, something was inside of him, and he obviously was a sinner in such a way that he could not be contained, and so they just threw him to this nomadic place hoping that he would go away. Surely this guy was one of the biggest sinners of all. Go back and read Mark 5, 1 to 20. You won't find any divine commentary on the sinfulness of this man. Was he a sinner? Absolutely. Was there some sort of overt sin that allowed Satan a place in his heart for which he was then cast into this other place? No. There, there's no indication that this man had a demon of this or a demon of that for which then these demons took complete control of his life and then he was cast into this mountainous region and these caves and cemetery plots of the ground. No indication of that at all. In fact, when Jesus came up to him, what did he do? Did he point out the moral issues of his life? No, he knew exactly what he needed. He needed to be delivered from this satanic onslaught which produced this behavior. And so what did he do? He immediately said, come out, and the man was clothed and in his right mind. Now you say, is there ever a link between situational evil and moral evil? Sure there is. Sure there is. You're involved in that kind of demon possession and you're erratic and you're irrational and obviously sin results, but the issue is what is the cause? The cause is not some direct sin because the New Testament doesn't tell us that. What is cause is this curse that we're under. And what God does is He understands exactly where we are. When Jesus comes to us, if it's a moral issue, He deals with us on a moral basis. If it's a situational issue, He deals with us on a situational basis. And when we go to someone who is infirmed and sick and diseased, how should we go to them? We can't know what's going on on a cosmic level, but we do know this. I come to them and I have the Word of God and I have prayer and I want to encourage them and I pray with them and I talk with them about the Lord and I ask them, what are you learning? And I quote Psalm 119.71, It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn thy statutes. And I ask them, what are you learning about the Lord? How are you growing in the midst of this great affliction? But I don't say to them, as so many do, you know, if you really just had enough faith, you could walk right out of this hospital right now. See, that's a moral comment, right? That's not a situational comment. Now, my friend Johnny Erickson Tata, for whom I worshiped with for many, many years at Grace Community Church, told me that there are people who still, at conferences and seminars, come up to her and say, you know, Johnny, if you really had enough faith, you could just stand right out of that wheelchair and walk. See, that's a, that's a moral issue. That's saying you are not expressing an amount of faith that it, uh, would otherwise take you out of this affliction. That's out of bounds. We cannot do that. We cannot say that to people. We don't know what's going on. God has His purposes. And when affliction comes, whether it's by God allowing Satan to do it or whether God allows through the providence of life those things to occur by His own hand, we simply trust. And we simply say, Lord, You're in control of these things. I don't know why I, I have cancer. I don't know why I have these diseases. I don't know why I'm afflicted in this way, but You know. And what's your method to teach me, Lord? It isn't casting out devils and isn't doing those things. It's what James says, resist the devil and he will flee if that's the issue. It's uh, trying to, to be worthy of the Lord by service and ministry and by prayer. It's putting my armor on and by resisting the devil in the evil day, by doing all of those things. And if it is moral, you can better believe that God will reveal to me in clear terms what the moral issues of my life are all about. And when he does, I'm commanded not to deal with that as though it's a demon. I'm commanded to repent and believe. I'm commanded to take those things captive to the Word of God and to grow thereby. That's the issue. It's always the issue. 
we don't need to be intimidated in that way, not at all. In fact, if we're intimidated in that way, we've allowed someone who's told us something that the New Testament doesn't tell us. And we have to be those noble Bereans, and we have to go back to the Scripture and examine those things to see whether these things are so. Which really brings us to a place of wonderfully affirming our text of Mark 6. Oh, it's so beautiful. See, I can, I can rejoice in this and not be intimidated by it. I can rejoice in the fact that at a point in time, for the very purposes of God, God allowed some sick people, infirm people, handicapped people to come to Jesus Christ Himself, and in the uniqueness of His ministry, He touched out His hand and He healed them. Oh, that's so beautiful. When you read these texts, you say, glory to God that there was a time when it was very evident by the Scripture's teaching itself that Satan was defeated and that God was righteously vindicated when He reversed the effects of the curse. You say, yeah, but I want that today. I want that right now. I want that for my loved one. I want that for... You know what the answer is? Jesus and the apostles were unique, and they laid, according to Ephesians 2, the unique foundation of the church. And once the foundation has been laid, it does not need to be laid anymore. You say, well, that doesn't comfort me when my friend is hurting. You know what will comfort you? You take those New Testament epistles and you say, here's what God's remedy is for someone who's suffering from an affliction. And you can say this, I believe that God heals today absolutely. But He doesn't do it through a healer ministry. He doesn't do, do it through a deliverance ministry. What He does, if He chooses to do it, is do it by Himself so that He receives all of the glory. And if He does it by Himself and it's a true and bona fide ministry, I praise God and I rejoice in it and I'm as much a charismatic as anyone at that point. But if it doesn't happen, I don't say to those people, you didn't have enough faith. You didn't have enough trust in God. You didn't have the demon of this or that cast out of you. That's what you need. No, sir. Absolutely not. You know what that does? It puts people under an incredible pile. And we dare not do that for those people. We have the balance. God is the one who heals, and if He chooses to do it according to His will, we praise God. But if, it is, if He does not, whatever affliction a person remains under is by the very purpose of God so that He can receive ultimately all the glory. And that's our Lord's true purpose for healing. And if we never say anything about this again, we know this, that according to the Word of God, Jesus and the apostles had a uniqueness that we cannot share. In fact, I don't, in the final analysis, want to share it. You say, why? Because it confuses the issue. I don't want anybody looking at me and saying, He's the healer. He's the one who can do this or that. I want God to receive that glory. I want God to be the issue. I'm just the mouthpiece. And when He does His work in the hearts of men and women, even in a physical sense, even in the affliction sense, that's His work, not ours. We're just the mouthpiece. We're just the instruments. You say, well, that's true of someone who's the healer. He would say about himself, he's just the instrument. Well, it's so much more confusing that way. And if it's confusing that way, I'll let God do His work, and I'll do what He's told me in His Word. Because what He's told me in, the, in His Word is to use the Word of God in prayer and to use the spiritual means that are available to me as the New Testament epistles tell me. And when I do that, I have a full-time job. Is that right? Full-time. Full-time just to know it first, and then full-time to preach it and teach it with accuracy to the people that I love and the people I want to minister to. I haven't begun to plumb the depths of what's here. 
And before I do, I don't want to go out in a way that's not only ahead of the Lord, but intimidating for the church to say, I can do this. This person can be healed. This person can be touched. This person can be resurrected if need be. I'll leave that to the Lord. He's the one that's our power source. I want you to bow your heads with me. And as you do, I want you to ask yourself the question, have, have I sensed an intimidation on the part of those I've listened to? And I've let myself wonder about whether or not I'm wrong and they're right about this matter of healing. Well, let me encourage you. Our Lord dealt with those people in those conditions in a way that is unique to Him. Don't be intimidated by those around you. We're intimidated enough because of our own lack of diligence and study and our own lack of prayer to be intimidated by others who say we also need to have a deliverance ministry in our church. Lord, we know that we do have a deliverance ministry here. It's the deliverance from sin by repentance and faith. It's a deliverance into the kingdom of light from the kingdom of darkness. It's a transference that you give us that is far more powerful because it not only allows us to transcend the physical and the earthly and the degenerative effects of sin in this life, but it allows us to be a resident of the life to come. Father, we even know that with the situational evil that befalls each and every one of us, with our eyesight, with pain in our body, with becoming older, we know situationally all of that will be dealt with in time when the earth will be burned up with a fervent heat. And all of the degenerative effects of the sin that is all around us will be vanquished ultimately by you, the champion. And the earth itself will be completely gone and recreated in a new heavens and a new earth where there is no affliction, there is no pain, there is no suffering, and in eternity future we will live with you forever, both physically and spiritually, in a glorified state where all situational evil and moral evil will be gone forever. Oh, Lord, hasten that day. Bring it to us. And while we wait for that day, allow us the patience and the fortitude to study, to learn, to grow, to see below the surface of some of these things and not just to, to buy into the intimidation. Lord, we know that sometimes it's it's unintentioned by them. They don't mean to do it. They're just so naive and think that these things are commonplace. Lord, we know that you've called us to be a noble Berean. And may we do so because you have gifted us the greatest gift of all, the gift of your Son and his Word and the Holy Spirit to apply it. Thank you for giving it to us, for giving us Christ.
That's all we need. In his name, amen.